Amen. Uh, you can be seated. Like I uh, said earlier, we're in the second week of this series called The Grace-Centered Family. And the truth of the matter is, uh, if I can start out with kind of a negative tone, the perfect family is all a big myth. You know that, right? That sometimes when you're getting ready to go to a church or you're browsing social media, you're like, man, everyone's family has it together. Everyone's family is healthy. Why is my family screwed up? And you just need to know it's a myth. There are no perfect families. And I think social media helps to propel this idea. And I have found myself even caught into it before where uh, I've told you this story before, but when uh, our son Sam was uh, four years old, we took him to Disney World. And uh, we paid for the photo package to have the kind of Disney person take your picture uh, throughout the park. And we were entering Magic Kingdom the first day, and there's a picture station right out front, and Sam didn't want any part of it, right? He wanted to get in there, meet Mickey, Donald, Goofy, that whole thing. Um, But we paid a lot of money for the package. And it was important to Cheryl and I that we have pictures. And so Sam's kind of throwing a fit. He doesn't want to do it. And so I kind of get down. I'm like, hey, two points, just real quick, two points. Number one, we paid a lot of money for this. I know you're too young to understand that, but it's just the truth, all right? Point number one. Point number two, mommy wants these pictures. I threw her under the bus. Mommy (laughs) wants these pictures. And we're going to give mommy the pictures that she wants. And so we all kind of gathered together, the castle in the background, great big smiles. That's one for the picture book. That's one for social media. But you didn't see the whole story behind it, right? The crying, the tears, the begging to not do the picture. You just see the big kind of happy family. And listen, you see, I'll tell you, the scriptures back this up, that there are no perfect families, uh, if you've been uh, with us the last couple of years, you know that we're slowly, January through uh, Easter, we're slowly been kind of working our way through the book of Genesis. And when you read the book of Genesis, you very quickly come to the conclusion, these people are screwed up, right? <laughs> these people are really messed up. Uh, I know they're called by God. They're, you know, they, they you know, were the founder of nations. God used them greatly. But these families are screwed up, right? It's like watching the Johnny Depp trial. You're like, my family's healthy, right? We're not perfect, but we're healthy when you you watch that. It's like reading the book of Genesis. You feel the same way. They're messed up. They're really messed up. Now, in addition to that, there's a theological concept that also backs up what I just said. And that is Paul in the book of Romans. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so every member of your family is bringing in their baggage their sins, their habits, their hang-ups. So there is no perfect families. Every family has sinners in them. That's why we absolutely need grace to permeate our families. Because perfection's probably not going to happen, so grace needs to happen. Right? And so we permeate our families with grace, and that's what this series is all about. Now let me just say a couple of things. Right, You're going to discover... Whenever we do a family, some of you are like, well, I'm done raising my kids or, you know, we're not a traditional family or whatever. The principles that we're going to talk about in this series can, first of all, be applied to any relationship that you have that needs grace, which is all of them, all right? They can be applied, and they can be applied in uh, traditional settings or non-traditional settings. These principles work in every setting. So uh, we're, we're going to apply them together uh, as we study what the grace-centered family can look like. Let's pray and we'll get to it, all right? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. Um, and we want his grace 
to permeate our families. That when we browse social media or we just kind of see people from far away, we might get the impression that they're perfect and we're messed up or broken or there's something else going on. But we know that nobody's, no, no family's perfect. So perfection probably shouldn't be the goal. But if grace can be the goal, it can transform and change our families. And we're grateful for that. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So Scott did this really great job uh, last Sunday of showing in the book of Ephesians kind of what Paul does. He does this throughout his writings, honestly. But the first four chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul is building this platform of grace. One chapter after another, he's saying, this is what grace looks like. This is what love looks like. This is what, what it looks like. And then as he begins to transition out of those theological truths of grace, he begins to apply them to very specific situations. And in chapter 5, one of the situations he applies it to is family. And so we're going to be in Ephesians 5, and Paul's going to show us this grace attribute of love. So let me ask you this question before we get to Ephesians 5. What is love? Well, I came across a, uh, an internet article recently where they were kind of asking kids what they thought love was. And I thought some of their answers were really great. Rebecca, age 8, said, When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time. Even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Terry, age 4, love is what makes you smile even when you're tired. Danny, age seven, love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes the first sip before giving it to him to make sure it's okay. <laughs> Emily, age eight, love is when you kiss all the time and then when you get tired of kissing, you still want to be together and you talk more. My, mo <laughs> my mommy and daddy are like that. They look gross when they kiss. <laughs> a Noel, age seven, love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt and then he wears it every day, right? Tommy, age six, Love is a little like uh, is love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. <laughs> Elaine, age five, love is when mommy gives daddy the best piece of chicken. Chris, age seven, love is when mommy sees daddy smile sweetly and still says he's handsomer than Robert Redford. <laughs> right. uh, Jessica, age eight, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it, but if you mean it, you should say it all the time people forget, right? So that's what kids have to say about love. It's honestly not that different than what Paul says about love in Ephesians 5. Here's what he says on the screen for you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So Paul starts out talking about the marriage relationship. And he's going to address uh, men and he's going to address women in a marriage relationship. And it's important because in our unique culture here, we have become, you've probably noticed this, kind of a kid-centered culture. 
right? That families tend to revolve around the children. It's just kind of a period of time that we're in right now. We are a kid-centered culture. But Paul is reminding us here that one of the greatest gifts that you can give your kids is to have a healthy marriage, right? And we don't really talk about that a ton, but it is a gift that you can give your kids to say, we're going to strive and we're going to work toward health in our marriage. Even though both people in the marriage are, are bringing sin to the table, we're going to try to bring grace into our marriage and love and peace and harmony. And we're going to try to give uh, that stability to our kids. Now, this is obviously directed to husbands. But when you study the scriptures, you will discover that every member of the family, every person that you know, actually, is called to love the way Paul describes here. As a matter of fact, we're called to love everyone. There's scriptures that talk about husbands. Love your wives, like this one. Wives, love your husbands. Children, love your parents. Vice versa. But the scriptures will go so far as to say, listen, just as an off-subject uh, thing, if you're ever wondering, like, when can I stop loving? Who is the person that I don't have to love? Jesus went out of his way to say, hey, just as a side note, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So every member of the family is called to love this way. Paul is specifically addressing husbands because he says in a family, he wanted to make sure that someone was leading the way on love, that someone was setting the example. And in, in the family he's addressing here, he's talking about being husbands, but if there's not a husband, uh, anybody can step up and, and kind of fill a role of leading the way on love. And every member of the family should be loving in this same way, but he does address it to, to the husbands. And I don't think in our culture, we don't tend to think about it this way very often. Most of the time when we think about the person bringing love into the family, most of the times we think about the mother or, or the wife. We tend to think about it as a feminine characteristic. And you even saw that in the kids. When they asked the kids, like, you know, tell us as an expert on love what you think about love. A lot of the kids were like, when my mom does this, when my mom does it, when my mom does this, they tended to think about it in kind of a feminine way that the, that the wife or the mother is the one introducing love. And some of you may have had that experience in your home when your kid falls, they scrape up their leg. In my family, anyway, my kids don't usually come running for me. <laughs> like, we're going to rub some dirt in that and it's going to be fine, right? All right. <laughs> You know, brush it off. You're, you're doing okay. No, they go running uh, to their mom. Um, and uh, that, that's just the way we typically think about love. And listen, moms do fill this role. Every member of the family should be introducing love into the family. It's all of our responsibility. But isn't it interesting that Paul says, hey, husbands, dads, I want you to set the example in this. And listen, we do see uh, we, we do see these feminine examples of love all throughout the scripture as well. So, so it, it's not that moms, we're going to celebrate moms next week on Mother's Day, and they play a critical role in introducing love in, in, into the family. And like I said, the scriptures will back this up. One of my favorite stories about this, of a feminine example of love, is the story of Ruth in the Old Testament, where uh, Naomi, her husband, died. And then uh, her two daughter-in-laws lost their husbands, Orpah and Ruth. Their husbands passed away. And uh, Naomi says uh, to the daughters-in-law, listen, I want you to go back uh, to your homelands, and I want you to, to find husbands. I want you to be protected and all that. And Ruth just flat out refuses to go. And here's how the scripture says it. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. When you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. 
When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. It's an act of love. And we often don't have a problem thinking this way uh, 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 about women, uh, acting in a loving way. It's pretty easy to think of examples like that. But there are also these masculine examples of love all throughout the Bible. It might be Moses' love for his people when he introduced God's law to them. It might be Nehemiah and his love for Israel when he realizes that the wall protecting Israel had been destroyed. And the best example that Paul points out is it might be the love of Jesus for the broken world. Beaten almost unrecognizable, hung on a cross, mocked and ridiculed. He was motivated by love. And I wonder, guys, if Paul's trying to remind us of something here. I wonder if we are created a little bit more for love than we realize it, than we realize. That our culture depicts this as a feminine characteristic, but the scriptures say, hey, husbands, would you lead the way? Husbands, would you set the example? Husbands, would you kind of set the course for your family? And the other thing about this is that love does tend to be poured out through personality and background and even gender. So everybody does love a little bit of a different way. One person might show love through quality time, another person through active service. One might value physical touch, another words of affirmation. One might be very emotive with their words, and another lets, act, lets action lead the way. We all love differently, and it is. It's, it's poured out through our gender, it's poured out through our personality. It's poured out through our family background. We all tend to love another way. But as we consider the grace-centered family and get more into the text, um, I think that when you really consider grace, love is not just an attribute of grace. Love is the engine that drives the whole machine. Here's how the scripture says it. For God so loved the world, all right? So love is the engine driving God's car. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. A grace-centered family that's going to kind of work together and move past sin and be a healthy family, a grace-centered family is a family motivated by love. So we need love. What does it mean, though, and what does it look like? How is it a grace attribute? What, is it, what can it be like in a family? Paul gives us the examples here. First one on the screen for you. It's a love that gives up preferences and serves, all right? So if you're gonna have a love-centered, grace-centered family, all right, every member of the family, but husbands especially, you're leading the way on this, all right, sorry. Uh, we'll address wives and moms next week, but today it's, you get to lead the way on this. It's a love that gives up preferences and serves. And I love how the text says what Jesus did here. If you underline in your Bible, you can underline this. He gave himself up. He gave himself up. And he did it for our forgiveness. He did it for our grace. He did it for our new life. And this is one of the things grace flowing from a place of love does. It gives up its preferences. You might want to pay someone back. You might want to get even. You might want to punish them. But grace gives up its preferences and serves. And this can be done on a macro level. Jesus does it on the macro level, the most kind of serious level that this can be done on. But this giving up of oneself can be done a hundred times a day in your marriage, in your family, in your relationships. It's the mom who just wants to grab a nap, right? But a few more things need to be done in the day. And so she gives up her preferences and serves. It's the dad who just wants to watch the NBA playoff game. 
But his son or daughter desperately needs help with their homework, and so he gives up his preferences and serves. It's the husband that just wants to sit down, but chooses to do a chore for the family. It's the older child that in general, which my son were in here, in general, his younger sibling is driving him nuts. But the sibling chooses to give up his preferences and engage and play with the sibling. This can be done a hundred different ways, a hundred times a, a, a day, but it is the secret sauce of family. It is the members of the family with the dad leading the way saying, dad saying, I'll go first. I'm going to give up my preferences. I'm going to give myself up for the sake of the family. And we're going to talk more about submission next week, all right, which is the voluntary and joyful laying down of one's life for another. But don't underestimate the power of this, guys, of giving up your preferences and serving your spouse or your family, or your friends. It introduces a layer of health and joy in the family that you would not believe. So that's first, all right? It gives up its preferences and it serves. Here's number two. It's a love, and this is so important, so we're going to spend our time here a little bit. It's a love that strives toward mission, all right? So Jesus gave himself up, but he gave himself up for a reason. Here's how the text says it. To make her, the church, holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present herself him, himself as, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless so Jesus gave himself up he served but he does it in the context of God's mission and purpose for the world he didn't necessarily give himself up to do what the masses wanted him to do and there were a lot of people, when you read the New Testament, there were a lot of people that had an agenda for Jesus' mission and purpose. They, they had a mission and purpose that they wanted him to do. The Pharisees wanted Jesus to restore Israel to prominence and dominance uh, as, as, a, as a world religion. The Zealots wanted Jesus to amass an army and drive Rome out of Israel. Even Rome had an agenda for Jesus. They wanted to use Jesus as a peacekeeping force to keep the Jewish people kind of in check as they were inhabiting their land. Everybody had an agenda for Jesus. And Jesus understood, this is so powerful, Jesus understood it would not be the loving thing to serve their agenda. The loving thing was to serve God's agenda. So he climbed up on a hill called Calvary. He surrendered himself. He gave himself up so that we could be holy and blameless and forgiven. We could be presented to God and have a relationship with him that we were created to have in this life and in the next. And he gave himself up because the mission required it. Now, so where are we going with this? Have you ever thought about the mission and purpose of your marriage? Right? There could be a lot of answers to that question. The big one you see uh, in our text today, that hopefully when you think about your marriage or, or, uh, and what your mission for that looks like, hopefully your vision be go, goes beyond we're having fun. That's, that's the vision. Or we're a great partnership. Or we're like two peas in a pod. Hopefully your vision uh, for your marriage has to do with this text is teaching us. That, that, uh, that we want to demonstrate for the world in our marriage what the gospel looks like. 
That Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride. And so when people wonder, what does that even look like? Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride. That your marriage would be one that steps up and says, look at us. We're a demonstration of that truth. We're demonstrating what the gospel looks like, what Jesus looks like, what God looks like. And people can see it's a big call. It's a lot better than, eh, we vacation together, right? It's a bigger call than that. We're having fun right now. It's bigger than that. It's, man, when people look at us, I want them to be able to say, that's like Jesus loves the church. That's like God loves his people, the way they love each other. So have you ever thought about the mission and purpose of your family? And hopefully, again, it goes beyond we're having fun together, we're enjoying experiences, we're hanging on. That's the mission for us right now. We're just barely hanging on, right? Hopefully it goes beyond all of that. And it's like, man, God has entrusted these kids to us. God has entrusted these kids to us, and he has made us a family. So we want to parent well. We want to grandparent well. If we're the children, we want a child well, right? And we want our family to have a bigger mission and a bigger purpose than, yeah, we're doing experiences. We're having fun. We want our family to be a reflection of God and his family. Now, this is going to be controversial, all right? So I want you to pay very close attention to what I say, all right? Sometimes what happens in a family is one member of the family starts to serve a different mission. They start worshiping another God. They start pursuing a different purpose. And and this can be any member of the family, but sometimes one member of the family just kind of goes sideways and they start pursuing their own thing, worshiping their own God, pursuing their own purpose. It can be a hobby that becomes just all-consuming, and it's a distraction from the true calling and the true purpose of the family. It can be a really good thing, all right? This isn't necessarily a bad thing, a really good thing that over time just became a God thing. Um, I've seen youth sports become this, and I'm a big believer in youth sports, but all of a sudden, man, the whole family is kind of operating around this sport and things like worshiping together, spending time together, serving together. It all takes a back seat for this kind of one child's sport. I've seen a thing like shopping become this, where all of a sudden one member of the family is just like spending and spending and spending I've seen media consumption become this, where all of a sudden like, we're obsessed with entertainment. I think this happened a little bit during the pandemic, where all became just kind of obsessed with entertainment. I've seen some really destructive behaviors become this, like addiction. I've seen sexual identity become this. And all of a sudden, the mission and purpose for this member of the family, it's like, it's no longer what I described earlier. It's like the sport. This is our mission and purpose getting more and more stuff, buying more stuff. Toys is our purpose. The addiction of the family member, like this is our purpose now. And we see in the example of Jesus that the loving thing is not supporting that. The loving thing is supporting the mission and purpose of the family. That we want to be a family that gives honor and glory and praise to God. Now this, I, it's messy. And I, I understand, I'm, I'm tra- you know, I ran this by Cheryl. I ran this by, like, should I even say this? Is, you know, and, and, you know, I, I think the text, like, backs it up. This is messy. But the question becomes, what do you do when this happens in your family? 
Because a lot of families in this room, I guarantee it right now, are affected by this very thing. You thought you were on mission, you thought you were on purpose, and one person or, or multiple people, they're just kind of going their own direction. What do you do? You usually think we have two options. That's usually what most of us think, is we have two options. One is to give in. And a lot of times what you'll hear is, well, if it's important to them, then it's got to be important to me. And so the mission, purpose, values of the family just become that thing. You, you give in. And you're like, all right, our, our family's going to revolve around this. Our family's going to be in a bunch of debt, whatever the case may be. Everything's going to revolve around it, and I'm just going to give in. The other option that people often see is to give up. I'm giving up on the relationship and maybe everyone's going to go and do their own thing in the family. We're going to go to our own corners and slowly the relationships just kind of come apart um, and, and sometimes they end altogether. And so usually we see this as our two options. Do, do I give in or do I give up? What I want you to see in Jesus is that grace gives us a third option. So let me talk to you about grace just for a minute. Grace does not simply turn a blind eye to sin. Grace identifies sin as sin, mistake as mistake, distraction as distraction, off mission as off mission. There's a, te- there's a Bible verse that says, love rejoices in the truth, right? So grace is not like all of a sudden God doesn't care about our sin and, and all of a sudden he's just turning a blind eye to it. That is not grace. Love rejoices in the, in the truth. Consider the work of Jesus on the cross. The cross does not deny sin. The cross calls sin, sin. But it also doesn't just give up on the person either. What grace does is it offers forgiveness. And you know what grace does? You know what God did through the cross with grace? Grace preserves the relationship. Grace says, I see your sin. I am calling it sin, but I am offering you forgiveness. And grace preserves the relationship. And this is so important because in a preserved relationship, influence can happen. In a preserved relationship, conversation can happen. In a preserved relationship with minor children, discipline can happen, right? Grace does not mean we don't discipline. Grace actually requires it because love requires it, right? The Bible says that we're disciplined by God because he loves us and because we're saved. Somebody doesn't, you know, if I I see your kids running around, I don't discipline your kids. I discipline mine, right? If I disciplined your kids, you'd be super ticked off at me. I discipline my own children because they're in my family and I love them. So grace doesn't deny discipline with minor children. Grace embraces it. And this is what God is accomplishing in the gospel with us. He's preserving the relationship so our sin doesn't result in us being cut off from him. And through then the relationship, he's giving us the law He's giving us the example of his son, Jesus. He's giving us the Holy Spirit to empower us and help us. He's disciplining us. And all of that happens because he preserved the relationship with grace. I love the example of Jesus on this. He's not giving in. It's like, oh, lying's no big deal. Stealing's no, he's not giving in. He's not giving up. He's doing anything but giving up. Through love and grace, you know what Jesus is doing? Here's the third option. He's leaning in. Right? We think giving in or giving up are the only two options. No, through grace, Jesus preserves the relationship and he leans in. And through grace, he's preserving the relationship and he's convicting us and empowering us and helping us because the mission is so important to him. Now listen. 
I have been around quite a while at this point and had my own experiences and pastored a lot of people in their experiences. I know this isn't always possible, what I'm describing to you. It takes two to tango. Sometimes the other person does not want the relationship preserved. Sometimes sin gets to a place where the relationship can continue. The Bible talks about this too. But when it can happen, it is beautifully messy. And it's powerful. Because it is identifying sin is sin, mistake is mistake, distraction is distraction. Often it's, it's, it's rejoicing in the truth, but it's saying, I'm not giving up either. Through grace, I'm going to lean in. Through grace, I'm going to lean in. And we're going to dialogue as a family. We're going to pray. We're going to seek godly solutions. We're going to try to exert influence. But I'm going to continue to lean in through grace. And like I said, it's not always possible. It's not always possible. But when it happens, it is beautifully complex, messy, and hard. So don't think that you only have two options. We're like, man, one, one, one member of the family is just kind of doing their own thing, and it's counter what we've always believed our mission was as a family, and, and they're kind of doing their own thing. Don't think you only have two options of, do I give in and just fully embrace it? Or do I give up and just get them out of my life altogether? Through grace, you probably have a third option. Through grace, you have a third option of, of like Jesus, leaning in and providing grace and forgiveness and mercy. Trying your best, although it's not completely up to you, to preserve the relationship so influence can continue to happen. Last thing we see in the text. It's a love that provides. And he uses two examples here in the text. Uh, he uses the example of self-care, that I never have to give a sermon uh, about taking care of ourselves, <laughs> right? As human beings, it's like, you know, you do, you do you, take care of you. No one ever needs to preach that sermon. Uh, we're we're pretty, pretty good at that. So he uses the example of self-care and then the example of Christ, that he loves and cares for the church. He provides for the church everything they need. And I think that we have a... Uh, a cultural pressure of provision. Right? How many of you have ever felt the, the temptation to provide more for your kids than your parents provided for you? Right? It, it's, a, it's a cultural pr- pr- uh, pressure of provision, of uh, providing more. And I was just thinking the other day about my grandparents, and I was thinking about their house, and my grandmother uh, had her first son, and then uh, she got pregnant, and back then they didn't even realize she had twins, my uncle came out first, and then she's like, something's still not quite right or whatever. I'm like, oh, my goodness. And it was my dad, right? My dad was the, the surprise. And he, he kind of ended up wearing that around his whole life. Let's kind of chip on his shoulder about it. But, you know, they didn't even know I was there, you know. And <laughs> never again in my life did they know I was there, right? You know, that, that sort of thing, you know, kind of wore that, wore that around. But, um, you know, I think about they, they had this, like, tiny little house, you know, and... Uh, I mean, it, it couldn't have been, you know, it, 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 it probably about half the size of my house. Um, and then my parents, when I was growing up, they had a house that was a little bit bigger than that. And we've got a house a little bit bigger than that. And we're having regular conversations about we need more house. You know, we're, you know, getting strangled by, you know, the closeness, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and, and so there is this cultural pressure about, about provision and going beyond what your parents provided. 
but this is talking about something different. Um, I, I think we talk a lot about provision, but we don't talk as much about, am I providing the right things? Is my provision wise and good to help my wife and my kids and my family and my friendships be who God created us to be? Am I providing the good things that I need to provide, like a good example, the right atmosphere, good teaching? Um, Lava doesn't just provide what is wanted. My kids are like your kids. They want a lot of things. It's not just providing what is wanted. It's providing what is needed. And, and again, he calls on guys to kind of lead the charge on this. But again, this is every member of the family's responsibility. And again, we see the example of Jesus. He provided what we needed by going to the cross. And so when we talk about being a grace-centered family, we want to pause here for a few minutes. And we want to reflect on his grace. That um, I always say that if, if we think that grace is going to make things more simple or easier, we're wrong. Grace actually does complicate things. You know, it's like, man, what does it look like to extend grace to this person and they really hurt me and I don't know what it looks like to preserve the relationship? It's messy. And I know everybody in this room has a relationship that they're thinking of. And it's like, man, I don't know what grace would look like here. It's, we're so far down the road and I don't even think things can be preserved or I don't even think I can really demonstrate grace to them at this point. And so we want to just reflect because I don't know the answer to those things. But God does. And so we want to reflect on his grace and his love and his forgiveness and see where he might be leading us in our individual situation. That this is what grace looks like. It's laying down oneself for the sake of the mission and providing everything that is needed for the mission. That's, I should have just said that at the beginning because that's the whole sermon, right? We didn't have to spend the last 35 minutes together. But, um, you know, it, it is being on mission, graceful, providing, and it's messy. And so I want to pray for us right now and uh, give us some time as we uh, engage in communion together to reflect on his grace and what that might mean in our relationships. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. And I am, I am grateful, and I think everybody in this room is, that when, he, when Jesus saw my sin, he didn't just give in and say, well, Steve, you do you. I guess if that's the way you want to live, that's fine. He didn't just give in. I'm grateful for that because I need to change. And he didn't give up. And I'm so grateful for that, that he didn't give up on me despite my sin and despite my wrong. He, he didn't give up. I am grateful that he chose this third option of leaning into me and preserving the relationship through grace. And then, as he preserved the relationship, God, you, you showed me your law, you empowered me with the Holy Spirit, you disciplined me, you did all these beautiful things so that I could live a different life. We're grateful for third option. I don't know what it looks like in all our relationships, but you do. And so right now, as we remember the sacrifice of your son Jesus on the cross and the steps that he took to preserve a relationship with us, I just pray that we would be mindful of it and motivated um, to bring that type of grace into our relationships. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
Hey, we're going to receive communion together and do that time of reflection. You'll see two cups stacked on top of each other. You can just kind of hold on to those, and I'll come back up in just a minute, and we'll receive it all together after a time of reflection. His body given for you. His blood poured out. God, we are so thankful that you leaned in. You preserved our relationship. You're exerting your influence on us to help us change. And we're grateful. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Uh, next Sunday is going to be Mother's Day. And I have to tell you that um, I, uh, I team preach probably like 80% of the year with a buddy of mine up in Michigan. And uh, he called me this week and he was like, hey, I just wanted to ask you, like, is there a reason that you have this series laid out the way that, that you do? Because, you know, we, I had kind of developed the series and he and I were doing it together. I said, not in particular. I mean, they don't really build on one another, but, you know, we're just kind of doing it. He said, well, I was thinking about maybe preaching about how husbands should love their wives on Mother's Day and not doing wives submit to your husbands on Mother's Day. I said, you know, that's a really great idea. Um, my sermon for this Sunday was already done, so that my people are not going to benefit from that idea. But I, I, I think I, I kind of wish you'd call me a couple days earlier. Um, um, but, you know, that's what his church is doing. Um, and, uh, you know, he might very well have a better pet. You might, they might have a better pastor than you. I don't know. But, um, but we are, no, we're, we're going we're gonna to be in Mother's Day. And it's really, it's not going to be. Um, you know, a lot of people point to wives submit to your husbands, but they forget like one verse right before that. It actually says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so submission is one of those things where when every member of the family brings it, it is life-changing in a relationship, in a family, in anything. If we can, we hate submission so much because I think we don't understand it, but we hate submission so much. But when we can learn to do it, it's life-changing. Go ahead and stand up. Let's close with one last song. God bless you guys. We'll see you next Sunday.